Hi, this is a lecture on patterning in your writing, how to create a pattern, how do patterns work, whether you're writing a screenplay, a novel, a comic, nonfiction, a stage play, etc. Patterns are important to all kinds of forms of writing. I'm just going to walk through this uh, because as you read screenplays and look at films, pattern is an essential component and way of thinking about structure and crafting of an idea. Pattern is the artful and intentional repetition and an important function in creative writing. First, a pattern is a system of road signs or signals for your readers and audiences designed to move them through your piece smoothly while guiding their attention to the most important parts of the work. Pattern is also one of the ways writers make meaning. So for example, when let's say a minister or preacher or an essayist may tell you what the meaning is, creative writers create meaning. Pattern makes any piece of art more complex, layered, and interesting. Pattern is partly why art is different from life. Real life rambles. Pattern contains a piece, helps give it a shape and a design, like creating a pattern for a suit and then making the suit. So even work that is intentionally meandering or drifting in its structure has a pattern. You've likely been taught in the past that the writing process involves three stages, generating, writing, and rewriting. You brainstorm ideas, you write them out, you revise. Writing is a bit messier than that. And sometimes those three stages actually intersect. You can be generating and writing at the same time. You can be writing and revising at the same time. You can be revising and then generating something else. They are less strict categories than one may previously think. One of the ways you can enjoy the writing process more is to keep an eye on pattern as you work. Attend to patterns, intentionally create repetitions of sound, image, and rhythm. Usually, 
As they create a piece of writing, writers enhance the patterns organically that are showing up, focusing on various potentials for repeating sound, image, and rhythm. Working with pattern may not come easily to you, especially at first, but try to be patient with yourself. There's also, I think, unconscious bias against or preconceptions about repetition. Sometimes people say it's a pattern of behavior or you're stuck in a pattern, but pattern is repetition with purpose. When we accuse someone of repetition, we imply that they are using pattern without purpose, repeating design elements that either are not worthy of repetition or are repeated mindlessly without a larger goal. Intentionally repeating yourself is brave. Repeating yourself calls attention to what you're saying. It takes confidence to believe that your sounds, images, gestures, and ideas are worth repeating, deserving to be underscored. For example, the artful use of pattern is how you can make a great poem out of a good poem. It's how you make fiction out of a stack of anecdotes, how you shape a play or screenplay from snatches of dialogue. When you make patterns, you make art. So perhaps the first pattern we encounter early on in life is the one of rhyming. As small children, we are drawn to pattern and find things that repeat and rhyme. And these things can be pleasing. Rhyme gives us pleasure. Rhyme provides a pattern so that we can memorize a piece of writing, carrying with it and us always. But rhyming for the sake of rhyming can be annoying. The verse can seem clunky, forced, amateur, because, the, because there's no purpose behind it. But rhyme isn't just for poets. Attention to the pattern of language is one of the most important features that distinguish creative writing from writing that merely informs, instructs, records, or explains. Sound repetition can underline or highlight or even evoke specific moods and feelings in readers and audiences. Yes, audiences in screenplay for screenplays do respond to sound. The sound is not only what's on the soundtrack or how sound is used in a score, but also how dialogue is sound and how things are repeated and can be, could even rhyme. Pattern isn't random. Writers often use echoes, sounds, or images 
instead of direct rhymes that are repeated throughout a piece. A figure looking in the water, a figure looks in the water again, and so on. In Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, the two characters that are walking and talking at the center of the story, a certain pattern is created in the places and even framing gestures, who's on the right side of the frame, who's on the left side of the frame, on any given um, act of composition. And as viewers, we start to recognize the patterns. Why, for example, may one character always be on the right side of the frame? Why might another be always on the left? Who is looking which direction? How are they regarding each other? How do they regard the world around them? And does this repeat? And with each repetition, is there a variation? And what are we learning about the characters or figures in the story? So one of the key things that happens in screenplay writing, especially in plays as well, is that you're patterning by eye. Writers also create patterns out of objects or images to make a piece of writing more meaningful and cohesive. This is called a unified pattern of imagery. For example, take an inventory of the specific details objects, the stuff in your piece. Many beginning writers need more stuff in their stories, poems, plays, and films. They refer to general worlds, but they don't populate those worlds with the details of real life, thereby missing an opportunity not just to be energetic, but to create a complex interesting, layered pattern of imagery. Don't just stick in random stuff. Choose objects that go with or work against the stuff in your piece, making interesting visual patterns. Some paper, an idea, blank walls. What's the pattern? Vague emptiness? A cigarette, a broken baby stroller with a baby in it, a half-empty, warm beer can. Now that's interesting. Those things make a pattern that affects the viewer. There's a pattern of danger, neglect. The images make a pattern all on their own. That pattern starts to tell a story. So one way to think about this is to really uh, work with photography. Uh, films, of course, you know, before films, there was photography. And in screenwriting, although you are incorporating elements of the stage play uh, into film, some of the same core tenets of writing a stage play are involved in filmmaking, especially in ways of storytelling. One of the things that distinguishes filmmaking is that you can really rely on 
patterned by I, UIE, to really help tell the story and to help move the narrative along. And you can very quickly and efficiently with essential brush strokes basically do a lot of you know exposition or even backstory signaling through patterning by eye. Characters don't have to tell anything. You just see it, right? You can get a sense of it right away. And this is really important to lay down. In the screenplay for the pilot of Fleabag, Phoebe Waller-Bridge does an incredible amount of patterning by eye and uses a lot of repetition, but in ways that are subtle and maybe uh, not as uh, clear at first, or at least at first glance. The rodent teeth of the man on the bus, the rodent teeth of the hamster, or should I say the guinea pig in the guinea pig cafe. Those images are linked. One is a real animal. The other is a human being, but they're linked. And the link is um, at first strange and maybe disassociating, but the connection is that the character Fleabag it runs the guinea pig cafe and her sense of self is defined by that cafe. She is its owner, uh, its manager. It is the place where she was going to establish and is trying to establish what Virginia Woolf might call a room of her own, away from family. And in the case of this cafe, initially co-founded with her best friend, that space also becomes a space for acts of transgression uh, where she has random uh, sexual encounters with people in the cafe, thereby transgressing the sense of refuge and safety in that environment, the environment that perhaps she is violating because it also contains the memory, very present memory of recent grief. So while I think an audience wouldn't necessarily make the initial connection between the teethy, the teethy man who is treated like a joke and is a visual joke in the storytelling and the guinea pig cafe, they are linked through Fleabag's desire, her sexual desire, and how that sexual desire has been transgressed and relocated in the world of the cafe where the betrayal against her friend occurred.
So it's a pattern by eye that catches us off guard. But she also does this in several other occasions in the script where she speaks about uh, the female body uh, in ways that are distorted, for example, or fragmented. The fragmented torso um, sculpture that the godmother has in her study, which Fleabag then steals, is a metaphor, a visual metaphor, for the fragmentation that Fleabag herself feels. That fragmentation is then augmented in a patterning by eye, where at several occasions in the script, Fleabag removes her top or exposes her breasts, and in fact, reducing herself to an image of her body, the torso that's exposed, but the person sort of obscured, right? The, the head and face is obscured. The sculpture that the godmother has uh, is headless. It's a headless uh, figure with just the torso uh, and body. So there's a, a kind of uh, objectification that's happening in that sculptural piece that then reinforces visually the idea of how Fleabag feels when she moves through the world, or maybe how she sees herself. And maybe one of the reasons why she steals a sculpture in the first place, not just as an act of spite against the godmother, um, whom she feels has violated um, and taken the place of uh, her mother in her mother's uh, loss and absence, but also as someone who is reconfiguring the female body uh, in, in the, story, the story of Fleabag. How does Fleabag see herself? She sees herself as an object. And she covets the object of the godmother because it's a way of enacting control in her life, in a life which she feels, and from what we can see as an audience, very much out of control. The pattern of objects tells a lot about the deeper layers of a story. The objects are signals, creating a kind of lighted pathway for the reader. The objects, when strung together, make meaning. And that's the power of a pattern. There's a, an exercise that sometimes is done in storytelling, which is around uh, telling the visual story of objects. So there's a, an exercise that happens in storytelling where you lay out a bunch of objects on the floor or on a table, uh, random objects. Uh, you can do this exercise at home 
and you're just trying to tell a story from from looking at those objects all before you. Uh, you can like pull stuff out of your backpack and put it on the table and tell the story of what that backpack tells you, right? And you start to sort of see the patterns. You know, are there similar objects? Do the color schemes match? Um, are there even uh, items of design that are similar um, shapes that form a pattern, etc.? So this is, you know, uh, and that that exercise is called the, you know, uh, the the art of the art of making meaning out of visual objects, uh, and it's a very useful exercise, a really simple one, but actually for storytelling, uh, especially narratively, uh, it's really helpful. Uh, because you can also liberate yourself from trying to look for cause and effect uh, through plot. Uh, and you'll, you can look through cause and effect uh, by other means, through associations visually, uh, with an understanding that those visual associations will render a kind of meaning for the viewer. So when you look at inanimate objects, you can notice if they create a visual pattern, and do you hear echoes? So thinking of them sonically uh, through sight, um, which is a little bit of mixing of metaphors, but uh, there are kind of visual echoes, right? That's sort of what you're looking for. When pulled out and strung together, what do the objects tell? What do they spell out? So in some stories, a series of objects, for example, might spell out images of decay or loss or fear. Um, in another story, they may spell out something else, depending on what you put forward. Um, and one thing you can do as a writer is then, of course, let those objects reappear throughout your story, even if they're just in the background. Uh, and our audience, even subconsciously, will start to track them. Uh, and, and start to understand things about what you're building, maybe without you having, without you actually having to tell them anything. Uh, a meaningful pattern of objects is key to a successful piece of writing. When writing a piece set in a house, you don't describe every single room or list everything in the fridge. You choose the items that go with the other items. Items that underline or highlight the feeling you want to evoke in the reader and viewer, you are a set designer. You can only bring in a few specific objects. What do you select to best amplify the drama and your themes? The objects are going to create a pattern. You want to control that pattern. When you bring in flowers, you bring in clashing colors, perhaps. Instead of providing beauty, maybe these flowers make scary Halloween shadows like weapons on the walls, and so forth. You do what good set designers do. You have a storehouse full of stuff, and you pull out different items until you find the right pattern. One of the most intriguing patterns to work with is that of movement, human, physical movement, or gestures throughout your piece. In Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy. Of course, it's a very dialogue-heavy script. It's driven by the conversation and connections that the characters are making with one another. 
but it's actually full of tiny, subtle, physical gestures that are embodied by performers. And these physical gestures actually tell us a lot um, and create patterns of movement that we are clued into as viewers. So this can be as simple as, for example, if you have a story where people are running, swooping and diving and dashing, tossing and digging, scratching and hollering. When they stop, stand still and whisper, they break the pattern that's been created, which means it heightens the tension and gathers our attention. And thus you're able to make a point. Pattern is a tool. Gestures are the way that writers choreograph their pieces. So a series of gestures like somebody making dinner, turning on the lights, a child lays their head down on their arm. Somebody moves quick, quietly through a kitchen, promising the child's attention. The boy sits up straight, for example, his child. All of that creates a little sequence of gestures that we're following. And they start to create meaning for us in the audience. We start to kind of understand something about what's happening. And by breaking those gestures, you can create uh, tension in your writing by literally changing the pattern, by moving sometimes from staccato gestures, boom, 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 to more elongated ones. So there are musicians, for example, that can write a song that repeats simple everyday words, but they also employ instruments to create other intersecting and overlapping patterns. Simple lyrics can repeat effectively in music, but less successfully if they're just spoken. Often song lyrics have to be sharp, hard, clear, simple, and straightforward in order to show up against all the other patterns of music. On the page, on their own, the words lack energy. What makes a beautiful wild paisley in the ear is a thin gray line on the page. Writers are not supported by a three-piece band uh, and have to write everything, the percussion, the melody, the lyrics, the bass line, and so forth. Words need higher volume and lower volume, intricacy, subtle sounds, rhythms and visuals. So one way to think about how, as you write is to think about how you're sometimes just writing the vocal line musically, but then when you keep writing, you think of yourself as being in the studio, mixing, laying down new tracks, focusing each time on certain elements, the bass line, the percussion, and that's very much what it's like to work with pattern. You are a mix master. You're looking for echoes. And if you like, if you have something you like in your piece, you repeat it for effect. Um, and of course, to guide attention, to create energy, intensity, and to discover insight into your own work. 
originality does not lie in your subject matter. Basically, all stories have already been told. So why do we keep reading? Why do we keep watching? Because it's how it's said, which is another way of saying of what your skill is in patterning. The how is about how it's put together. So for example, there are many different kinds of dresses. Um, the pattern underneath is what changes, um, but the essential shapes tend to remain the same, um, unless you really do something super radical. Patterning and insight go together, but insight, insight in writing needs to be cultivated. So I'm just going to walk through some couple of insight techniques to improve your work in progress, to start pieces in any genre, to get unstuck, or to build your observational skills. You can mix and match the techniques, but you can also try one at a time. Basically, what you're trying to do as a writer is to practice a writerly habit of mind, noticing tiny details, focusing on images, staying open to questions, toying with reversals, all conducive to building the muscles of close observation, strengthening your ability to uncover inner wisdom. Experiment out of your comfort zone. The trick is finding ways to get your depth and your inner wisdom out onto the page. Most writers, when they're starting out, feel they don't know enough to be considered wise and writerly. <laughs> Even experienced writers doubt they have enough to say or important things to say. For most writers, the feeling of having something to say varies daily, even hourly. Often on any day, we feel empowered to write and we sit down and create a scene or sometimes we feel blocked, empty, and everything feels pointless. The most important thing a writer can do is to develop insight, is to trust that if they pay attention to their own experience of the world, if they look long enough at the very things in front of them, and closely enough at their own life, the lives of those they know, they will have a good chance of writing some pretty interesting stuff. This method of cultivating insight doesn't mean you are stuck writing only from personal experience. How boring would that be? It means you work from life, starting close to home, writing what you know intuitively and emotionally, and working out from there. Use your actual experience in your lived life. If you write about firefighters, for example, based on watching shows about firefighters, the reader will probably be able to tell that this is not your firsthand experience. Unless you work from your experience or very detailed in-depth research, which requires you to actually talk to firefighters, chances are the work will be thin, cliched, false, or all three. But what I will say about this is that maybe you've experienced a fire or you've read about fires. Um, there are many different ways of doing research. You don't have to always go out and interview people. Um, there's a famous example, of course, in the world of literature, uh, one of many, um, 
the novel The Red Badge of Courage, written by Stephen Crane, is considered a definitive novel about war, and yet Stephen Crane was never on a battlefield. But Crane was able to immerse himself into an empathetic emotional experience. And using all of his sensorial gifts um, and gifts for insight, he was able to create a very convincing story world, so convincing that uh, veterans of war uh, were exceptionally moved by his novel. So I'll mention that because I think that sometimes writing from lived experience feels like you actually have to live everything that you write. Well, that's hardly true because people write about all sorts of things, <laughs> uh, you know, that they've never actually experienced. But maybe you find an analogous experience. So maybe you haven't climbed a mountain, but maybe you've climbed a tree, right? So you have certain muscle skills or muscle memory that you can uh, relate to the notion of climbing a mountain. And then you just do a bunch of research make sure that you're describing things correctly and so forth. Maybe your life has been very straightforward. Or maybe you have struggled mightily for years because of all kinds of circumstances beyond your control. Regardless, you know a lot about the depths of the human psyche because you have owned and operated one for some time now. From your lifelong study of humans in the world, your humans, on your street, in your circumstances, you do have something to say. Maybe you haven't read Moby Dick or traveled to South America. Maybe you don't speak two, three, four languages or study ancient cultures. Maybe you have no idea what you want to be when you grow up. You don't need to know more than you know right now in order to get started on being insightful as a writer. The great writers of the world have simply focused very tightly on the insights they can glean from what is right before them. When you're writing fiction, nonfiction, poems, plays, screenplays, or essays, tell the truth of what you know the most about. Tell as close and finally as you possibly can everything about the behind the scenes subcultures you know. Tell the secrets of the inner lives. Notice every tiny detail. Tell it all. We are each called to speak the truth, share the wisdom from our little corner of the world, saying, this is how people are here. This is what they do. This is how they react to this. Here is how they're going to respond to that. And here is why. As Zadie Smith says, the great novelist and now playwright, a writer's duty is to register what is is what it is like for them to be in the world. You don't have to write about from personal experience, but you probably do need to consider writing about what keeps you up at night, what to understand about what you don't know about what you do know. And I'll repeat that, what to understand about what you don't know about what you do know. Creative writing is all about providing readers with a sensory experience. 
While working on insight, go back to the core strategy that informs most creative writing. Create images that work like moving pictures, little movies, in the reader's mind. Creative writing works through the five senses. We don't write in order to hit the reader over the head with a deep meaning. In fact, in this particular art form, we actually avoid writing about ideas, although our characters may have ideas and they can be very articulate about them. In creative writing, wisdom is lodged inside images, layered between experiences. It's seen and felt and touched. The most powerful way to cue the sensory world in your reader is to provide moving images, images that will play out in the reader's mind and evoke insight. Instead of answering big questions on the page, insightful creative writing often poses questions. Artists, like children, ask many questions. Huge, ridiculous, sacred, amazing, inappropriate, tiny, potent, unanswerable questions. Creative writing often points to conclusions, even as it resists coming up with pat answers. Creative writing isn't afraid of a little mystery. Why your ex behaved that way isn't ever going to be revealed. It's just not. But looking closely at the how and why of the tension between the two of you may well generate something more useful and interesting for both of you, for both you and your viewers and readers. Questions usually lead us closer to the truth, toward deeper insights, and into the realm of wisdom. Asking the right question, specific, targeted, precise, is wisdom. When writing pretends to have all the answers, readers often keep the work at arm's length. Certainty can close things down, end things too quickly, cut off the curiosity that keeps us learning and moving toward insight. Getting in the habit of questioning, staying open to not knowing longer and longer, gives you a direct line to your innate wisdom. Practice letting your work pose small pointed questions, as well as giant life mystery questions, so the reader remains engaged, active, surprised, and wandering right along with you. The secret here is to make sure your questions take place from within images, in scenes, in places, at real points in time. Instead of having a great idea or answers for writing projects, get into the habit of asking questions about human behavior and motivation. Asking good questions requires you to develop a habit of paying close attention to exactly what you were wondering at an exact moment. This takes time and practice, but you can do it just as well as anyone else. Just ignore the uncomfortable feelings that will come when you first give it a try. Good questions are usually not the first one you think of. Use listing as your technique before, during, and after writing in order to generate insight-bearing questions. Wise questions often come in clusters, not from writing, not thinking out loud, but a calculated, forceful deepening of the narrator's hopes and considerations. Instead of recording your feelings in your journal, get in the habit of keeping a writer's notebook in which you ask questions. You can use this notebook to explore the questions that keep you up at night. What is the nature? of your father's essential personality, and what of that good or bad have you inherited, for example? Why do people drive too fast, 
drink too much, act irresponsibly. What motivates us? Why do we keep dating the same wrong person? Why is doing the wrong thing sometimes pleasurable? Asking questions that don't have easy answers or possibly any answers at all is a great reason to start a piece of writing. Writers spend time asking questions. We're the ones who pause on the street and say, wait, stop, did you notice that? Did you wonder why? To allow insight in your work to emerge, try pulling back on writing about emotion directly. Um, there's a writer named Dylan Landis who said the following in an article in Brevity Magazine. Early drafts are, are, are often marked by descriptions of strong feeling. Characters gaze at each other with overt love. They feel proud, ashamed, joyous, and heartbroken. And the writers come out and say it. What could be wrong with that? Well, uh, Dylan Landis describes how a great short story writer and playwright named Anton Chekhov critiqued another author, telling her not to overwrite the emotions and feelings in her work. Chekhov said, when you describe the miserable and unfortunate and want to make the reader feel pity, try to be a bit cold. That seems to give a kind of background to another grief against which it stands out more clearly. Whereas in your story, the characters cry and you sigh. Yes, be more cold. You've heard this before, I'm sure. It's another way of saying show, don't tell. Going cold means the more intense the emotion is, the less intense the writing should be. Going cold means that at moments of high emotional intensity, the author actually pulls back on the writing itself so that the reader has more room to feel. Landis explains in their essay, there's a writer named Tony Early that offers his writing students a numerical scale that illustrates the be more cold principle. He actually draws it on a blackboard. Two vertical lines is scored with markings from one to 10. One scale represents the character's expression of emotion and the other the reader's depth of feeling. The total of the two scales must equal not 20, but 10. This means only one person gets to do all the emoting character or the reader writer can't have it both ways. So think about one side of the page, an intensity of emotion felt by characters from 1 to 10, and then an amount of emotion described by the author from 1 to 10. So if you're writing about your adoration of potato chips, for example, and how fantastic your life is because of this incredible invention, your language can go over the top and be filled with heat and energy. We'll laugh and have strong feelings of delight. That's your purpose. But if you're writing about something very intense, like falling in love or a great loss, you can't have much emotional writing. No sighing, no hugging, no crying, no sobbing, no lament. When you are writing about deeply emotional experiences, You want to hew closely to what it was like to live the moment, how it looked from the outside. You write about how the streets looked on your way to the wake. 
That afternoon, the broken mailboxes, little kids on scooters in front of her house, how one had no shirt on and another was poking a stick in the ground. You write about a mourner's wrinkled shirt at the service. You write about your fingernails, or how all the cheese on the casseroles had dried into a crust and seemed impenetrable. No tears, nothing predictable, nothing overtly emotional. When you go cold, you can trust your reader to get it, to get the power of all the emotion. At the funeral, we aren't only thinking, gosh, I'm so very, very sad. We're actually noticing the details of the day. The strange little things capture our attention and stick with us. Going cold actually gives a better window into what a character actually experienced. And those experiences are what provoke emotion in your reader and viewer. Let your reader have the emotions, not the pages. Some signs that indicate that you might be overwriting the emotion, going hot that is, and not trusting your reader to feel their feelings as they read the work, are if you write about people sighing, crying, frowning, shrugging, if you use abstractions like of heated, florid language, words like devastated, sobbed, confused, upset, abandoned, inflamed, ravished, exhausted, pulsating, or emotional language like crying, weeping, sighing, pissed, try going cold. Use simple words. Describe the place where this is happening. Write down exactly what the doctor said or how he looked and what he wore. Compare your two efforts. Which one is stronger? If you are using cliches to describe heavy emotion, you're probably ready to try going cold. Writing that lacks insight is usually flat and predictable writing. A simple strategy for adding a shot of insight to your writing is to be purposely and boldly counterintuitive. Reverse yourself. Take what you wrote and say the opposite. Let's say your poem opened one way if you were writing a poem. I struggle to say how I feel each morning when you awake next to me. Okay, use the reversal technique. I don't struggle to say what I didn't feel last night when I slept away from myself. Already, that simple reversal makes the writing fresher and more surprising, more unexpected, and maybe perhaps a little more wise. The reverse opens up possibilities. And in possibility, there is almost always, always an arrow pointing toward insight. After you've experimented with reversing your field, try making your canvas enormous and epic. Go big, super big. Ground your work in the great continuum of history and see what you find. Maybe you need to exaggerate your own position or change your stance. Going big means that you can pull the camera lens back, way back in space and in time, and you consider the decades and centuries of history that are behind your piece of writing. You consider the location of your piece, and you see the big picture that frames the events you're looking at. This is called situating something in context. No matter how small, how sleepy, how regular the place you're writing about may seem, events there take place against a backdrop that is historical, political, and cultural. Setting, for example, a story in the context of where you live is a powerful and necessary task, but don't think that where you live doesn't have historical significance. 
Every place has a past, and that past, when rendered with detail and insight of passion, is potentially fascinating. Don't be intimidated by what you don't know. Few people take the time to look into their own history or the history of the place where they now live. To bring insight into your work, go epic. Consider how your story interacts with the history of the people in the place where you are situated. Surprise yourself. Your wisdom is in you, deep inside, often lurking just under the busy thoughts you walk around with all day. Looking inside lets the quieter wisdom emerge. Uh, we're almost at an hour, so I'll stop there. Uh, just some thoughts on patterning, insight, reversals, keeping yourself supple as a writer. Thanks for listening.